Good morning. So, 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud? Shouldn't you have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do, do you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Expel the wicked person from among you. In three different ways in that passage that Candace just read for us, Paul says that they needed to have removed one of their members. He says it directly. He uses a metaphor to say it. And then he quotes scripture here, expel the wicked person from among you. It's really clear, isn't it? what this part of the Bible is saying. It's not that hard to understand, but it's exceptionally hard to actually do. What if we were doing that today? What if that was what was going on here today? How would you feel? It would be incredibly uncomfortable, incredibly painful and sad. It feels harsh. It feels judgmental. It feels like the absolute opposite of what we're on about as a church. Now, heart is not to see people kicked out of us. We want to be a grace-filled, warm, accepting community where we really do live up to our vision of loving God, loving God's people, and loving Adelaide's North. But removing someone like this chapter is saying, it feels so unloving. And yet... There's just no getting around what it says so clearly. 
And in case you're thinking, oh well, it's not really relevant to me, this is something that the leaders of a church have got to wrestle with. Well, I don't think that's true. Because did you notice how this chapter is, is written not to the leaders in the Corinthian church? It's written to all of them. All of them. They all need to own what's going on. And did you notice that this isn't simply Paul telling them what to do? This is Paul helping them to see what they should have already seen for themselves and already done for themselves. There are three things as we work through chapter 5 that Paul wants them to see and which we're going to look at today as well. He says, we should mourn and remove unrepentant people doing wicked things. He says, tolerating amongst us what Jesus died to remove from us will pollute us. And he says, we're to deal with ourselves in the church and let God deal with the world. So we're going to look at each of these three things as we work through this part of the letter. And so we first see we should mourn and remove unrepentant people doing wicked things. Look at verse 1 again. Paul writes, It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. What Paul's saying here is that in this church, there's a, there's a bloke who's sleeping with his stepmother. And this isn't just gross or weird. It's wrong. It's morally wrong. The Bible's really clear about this, like in Leviticus 18. When it comes to sexual sin, the Bible knows just how twisted we can get as humans. And so it, it doesn't hold back from spelling out what is a corruption of God's design for sex. And so in Leviticus 18 verse 7... It says that it's wrong to sleep with your mother. Uh, you wouldn't think that that would be necessary to spell out, but the Bible does. Then in the very next verse, verse 8, it says, it says that it's wrong to sleep with your stepmother. It's a corruption of that relationship and other relationships. And so it's a corruption of the, the good purposes that God has for sex. And even the non-Jewish world... Even they knew this and believed this. I mean, the pagan world was renowned for being sexually immoral, in the Jewish mind particularly. But even in the city of Corinth, you could be put out of the city for incest. But the church in Corinth, they don't seem so sure that they should be concerned. They seem to be tolerating this behaviour. And even worse, Paul writes, verse 2, And you are proud. Now, it could be that they're proud of what this guy is doing, maybe because it shows just yeah how tolerant they are, how liberated they are. But if that was the case, I think you'd expect Paul to kind of hit that kind of thinking head on. You'd expect Paul to go to town on such a crazy theology that, that made even incest out to be a good thing. So I think that it could be that they're proud, not of this behaviour, but they're proud despite what this guy has done. And in some ways, actually, their, their, their pride has made them susceptible to this situation. You know, pride does that. It makes us blind to our sin. It makes us deaf to other people's critique of us. It makes us miss the steps that we should take. You know, they don't say pride comes before a fall for no reason. 
I used to work with a lot of um, uni students, and so I worked with quite a few young, arrogant, proud guys, actually. And sadly, I saw quite a few of them uh, make some pretty big mistakes because of their pride. We've already seen across the weeks that Corinth is a church that's been patting themselves on the back for their wisdom and for their spirituality. They're, they're proud. But Paul says they've got no reason to be feeling proud of themselves. Instead, they should be feeling something else. Look at verse 2 again. He says, Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Instead of pride, they should be feeling sadness and shame. Which is kind of weird, isn't it? Paul's not addressing the person who's done this thing. He never addresses him in this passage. He addresses the whole church and he says they should be mourning. If they'd been focusing on honouring Jesus instead of honouring their own names, then Paul says it should have been clear to them from Scripture, from the Gospel message, that they all should be mourning. Now, I reckon we struggle with this idea. I mean, we're a nation that has struggled to say sorry to the indigenous people of this nation. We're a culture that's in, in so individualistic. We're good at saying, well, I didn't do it, so I don't take any responsibility for it. Now, imagine someone here amongst us has an affair. They leave their wife and they, and they move in with someone else. But they keep coming to church and they're not sorry for what they've done. How would we respond as a church, as a family? Would we mourn? There are at least three reasons why that should be our response. First, we mourn, and we see this when you look across the whole of the Old Testament, we mourn because that person has broken their covenant relationship with God. They've betrayed God. That's what's happening with unrepentant sin. So we're to mourn for the sake of that person who's done this thing, but also for God's sake, actually. He's been betrayed by them. He's saddened by their betrayal, and so we should be saddened on his behalf too. Second, we mourn, though, because we actually do have corporate responsibility. You know, there in Corinth, they all bear some responsibility for what's happened, and so would we in a similar situation. Now, we don't bear responsibility in the same way as the person who's betrayed God like that. It's a different kind of responsibility. But like it or not, we're responsible for each other. If you have a child who goes off the rails and, and starts taking drugs and then holds someone up to get money at knife point, I guarantee that you'll mourn for that child and you'll mourn for the person that they've done that to, but you'll also mourn for yourself. You'll mourn that one of your own family has dragged your family name down and you'll feel at least some sense of responsibility for them. See, we face God individually but we don't just face God as individuals. We also face him as a family. We're much more than the, the sum of, of our parts. You know, we're, It's like we are individually bricks, each one of us, and yet we're not here as a pile of bricks. We're a temple. Do you remember that? Back in 1 Corinthians 3.17, Paul wrote, God's temple is sacred 
and you together are that temple. And so when a part of the temple here is doing something awful, some horrible things to other people, what should the rest of us, the rest of the temple be doing? Mourning. We together bear responsibility for what kind of temple we are here in Modbury North. We lift up the name of Jesus together or we drag the name of Jesus down together. We tolerate the name of Jesus being dragged down together. We bear responsibility together. We can't just wash our hands of each other. The final reason that we should mourn is because the effects of serious unrepentant sin, they're not just limited to one person. They spread. And so Paul says that the kind of mourning that, that they needed is the kind of mourning that actually takes action. Look again at verse 2. Paul says, Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? They're not just to feel sad and then do nothing. They should have removed this guy from among them. Now, this is interesting when you think about it, because remember at the start of Paul's letter, what was he upset about with them about? Their divisions. But here he's upset with them for not having divided, for not having removed this person from among them. See, unity is not our highest goal. Undivided devotion to God is our highest goal, to Jesus. Look at verse 4. He writes, So when you're assembled, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Notice what's happening. They're all to hand this man over. When they gather together as church, they're all to be involved. And what they're doing is they're actually handing him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, which sounds quite weird and it sounds really vindictive, don't you reckon? But you know it's actually the opposite. Destruction of the flesh means the destruction of of what's worldly in this man. In 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Literally, he says, people who are still fleshly. So when it's talking about the destruction of the flesh, it's talking about the destruction of what's worldly in this man. And worldliness here means what's in opposition to Jesus in this man. There to powerfully show this man his destiny if he doesn't turn back to Jesus. Putting this guy out of the church is done in the hope that he'll turn back. And putting him out is showing him that if he persists in in not turning to Jesus, he'll be cut off from God's people. He'll be cut off eternally from God. He'll belong to Satan. Now, they don't cut him off out of self-righteousness or cruelty, but in the desperate hope that he will turn back to Jesus, his only hope and our only hope. If someone's dragging the name of Jesus through the mud, the right thing to do is to point that out to them. And if they won't repent, the right thing to do is not for us to wash our hands of them and say, oh, well, I tried. The right thing is actually the hard thing which is to say, I'm truly, deeply sorry 
But you can't call yourself a follower of Jesus and not be interested in following Jesus. At least you can't do that alongside us. Because it brings the name of Jesus down. It destroys our message to the world that sin matters and they need Jesus. It risks your very soul. And actually it risks the souls of the rest of us. Now this is extremely hard to do. But make no mistake, it's actually the loving thing to do. It's loving God. It's loving the person. It's even loving those who don't know God. And it's loving God's people, the rest of the church. And this brings us to our second point. Tolerating amongst us what Jesus died to remove from us, it will pollute us. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. We've had a a few goes at making sourdough at home. Failed goes. I don't know if you've ever done it, but you need a jar of of starter that you feed with flour. It's kind of like this living, disgusting thing that takes over your life, really. It needs daily feeding. And then you add it to the dough, and then sure enough, it works its way entirely through and does its work and puffs up the loaf into a bread that you then cook, and it's rock solid for some reason, in our case. But that's, what's, well, that's what he's talking about here. You know, a little bit of leaven or starter mix, you add it to the dough, it works its way, its way through. Now, obviously, if your aim's to make flatbread wraps, you don't add leaven to it. You don't add the starter mix. Because if you do, it's, it's going to inevitably work its way through the lot and it'll affect the consistency, won't be so flat, and the flavour as well. Now, it's the same, Paul is saying, with tolerating insincerity, Tolerating insincere followers of Jesus. Because that attitude that that sin doesn't matter, it will spread through a whole church in no time. The image here is that that we're supposed to be pure flatbread without starter mixture, without yeast. That's what they'd eat at the Passover um, as they remembered how God had saved them from slavery in Egypt. How he'd, he'd passed over every house whose doorway was painted in in the blood of a lamb that had been sacrificed, but how God had judged the Egyptians who proudly opposed him, who refused to paint their doorways with the blood of a lamb. And so every firstborn son died, and that's how he freed his people, how he freed them and, and made them a new batch, a new people. And the idea was that he wanted them to leave behind their kind of proud ways in Egypt. Now, the night before he died, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal, the Passover festival, and he showed his followers actually how his death was the fulfillment of that Passover, how his death was setting them free from a greater slavery than slavery in Egypt. His death sets us free from slavery to sin and death He makes us a new batch, a new people, and he wants us to leave the old ways behind. Paul picks up on this imagery in verse 7. He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's like the doorways of our lives are painted with the blood of Jesus. 
Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See that? Sincerity and truth. If Jesus' blood is painted over the doorways of our lives, then we're called to be sincere followers of Jesus. Not in name only, but in truth. Otherwise, we're actually placing ourselves outside of that house, outside of that blood-painted house where there is only the judgment of God. This is about being genuine followers of Jesus. It's not about being perfect followers of Jesus. See, if we, if we thought we were perfect followers of Jesus or that was even possible, then we'd actually be insincere and untruthful to think that way. And if we started to remove from, from us anyone who sins, who'd be left? I think we could probably wrap up everything by about 10 to 11. You know, it could have a last one out. Can you turn off the lights and lock up for us? This is not about being perfect. It's not about being without sin. The point is not that sincere and true followers are perfect. The point is that sincere and truthful followers of Jesus admit when they do wrong. And they repent of it and turn away from it. Whereas insincere, untruthful followers of Jesus, they say, I don't care if it's wrong. I don't even want to know if it's wrong. I just want to do it. Sin doesn't really matter that much to me. And if we tolerate that kind of thinking and and that kind of living, then we're actually in big trouble as a church. It spreads. And we'll all start to share that exact same way of thinking. But the problem is, it's actually easier to tolerate that way of thinking than to do anything about it, isn't it? Probably this guy in the Corinthian church, probably he started a relationship with his stepmother. She's probably not a Christian, not a part of the church. And probably this guy, it's impossible to know for sure, but possibly he had some standing in this church. You know, maybe he was a wealthy guy or maybe he was, had some position of power in the city of Corinth. It could be that many of them are uncomfortable with, with what he's doing, but they just don't want to rock the boat or they don't think they've got any power to do anything about it or they're scared of the implications. You know, if you offend powerful people, it can come back to bite you. Christians in Corinth probably already had a precarious relationship in that city, a precarious standing. I mean, imagine if we had in our congregation here the Minister for Education or something like that. Imagine that. And then if they left their wife and moved in with someone 20 years younger than them that they work with, but they kept wanting to come to church, kept wanting to keep reading the Bible from the front and be on ushering, and they'd been pleaded with to repent, but they refused. How would you feel about that? I'd feel pretty torn up. I mean, seeing people betray Jesus is always, it's awful. And hopefully as a church we'd mourn. But I'm guessing we'd also feel pretty nervous if the Minister for Education had done that. I mean, let's be honest, we're on borrowed, borrowed time in this building. It's only a matter of time before the government says... We don't want any religious organisations in public school facilities. Every year that we we sign the lease, I thank God for it. 
And who knows where we'd go if, if we had to move from here. The minister before me, James, who planted this church with many of you guys, apparently he tried 30 different places before he found the Modbury Hospital, and even that wasn't ideal by the sound of it. So what would we do in that kind of situation? Well, we'd turn a blind eye, wouldn't we? We'd take him off Bible reading and usher him on, uh, put him on ushering less and less and just hope he kind of slipped away quietly on his own. If we did that, we'd be tolerating amongst us what Jesus died to remove from us. And that kind of thinking that says, oh well, sin doesn't matter, that would spread right through us. No matter what the cost, we've actually got to deal with that kind of thinking as a church, even though it's so hard and none of us in one sense want to. But we do, we have to deal with it. And this is our last point. We're to deal with ourselves in the church and let God deal with the world. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter, so a previous letter, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are, who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. See that? We're not called to withdraw from this world or the people of this world. We're not, cared, we're not called to be scared of people who think differently to us at all or to look down on them or to judge them. We're called to leave them in the hands of God. And that's true for people who aren't Christians who are amongst us here today and on other weeks as well. This stuff that we're looking at, it doesn't apply to people who aren't Christians. In verse 12, Paul says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're extremely glad you're here. Because we want you to hear about Jesus we want you to hear that Jesus is your only hope. And outside of him, there really is no hope. There's only God's judgment. We want you to hear that message because it, it's an uncomfortable truth. But it's the truth you need to know. The only hope for any of us is inside Christ. We want you to come to know God and to escape that judgment. Now, the danger for Christians is not being surrounded by people who don't follow Jesus, that's not our danger. The danger is letting ourselves be surrounded by people who claim to follow Jesus, but in their lives they show they don't give a stuff at all about Jesus. And this is a good thing, you know. It's a hard thing, but it's actually a really good thing. Hypocrisy is awful. Preachers who look like they follow God, but are only interested in making money off people. That's a terrible thing. Catholic pedophile priests. They should never have been protected by the Catholic Church. They should have been removed, expelled, and then handed over to the, the police. Domestic abusers. They shouldn't find a haven in the church. They should be called out and cast out if they won't sincerely truly repent we're to deal with ourselves in the church and we're to let god deal with the world look at what paul says in verse 11 but now i am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually moral or greedy an idolater or slanderer 
a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. We can't tolerate amongst us things like greedy business practices, you know, or greedy ways of living that hurt and exploit other people, or slanderers, abusive people who tear down the lives of others with their words, or those who have sex outside of marriage without remorse, or drunkards who are unrepentant about giving their life over to alcohol. These are sins that are clearly public. These are about sins that are clearly unrepentant. It's not about going on a witch hunt or something like that. It's about dealing with an attitude amongst us that says sin just doesn't really matter. So I want to finish today by talking about how we actually put this into practice as a church, reading this letter nearly 2,000 years after Paul wrote it. Because the principle is clear, I think, but how to apply it in our context? Well, that's not always so clear. Like, we don't meet in a home, for instance. We meet in a, in a, a public school, which makes excluding people slightly difficult. And how do we do this when we're not talking about 40 people who know each other's lives intimately? We're talking about over 200 people, some of, who don't even know each other's names. How do we do this when we're not the only church in town like they would have been in Corinth? If you leave here, you can go to 10 churches within 10 minutes, I'm sure. All these things, they make it tricky to think through how to actually put this into practice. And some of us, we look at the complexity and and we think, let's not even go there because we'll just end up doing more damage than good. But then on the other hand, some, some of us look at the complexity and we think, it's all the more important that we actually do this or we'll risk doing nothing and damaging ourselves. Now, both feelings are valid in their own ways, but they're incomplete. And we actually need to bring them both together. We need to make sure that we don't just do this to make ourselves feel better so that we feel like a more pure church. But on the other hand, we need to make sure we don't avoid doing this just to make ourselves feel better so that we feel like a more loving church. Instead, we actually need to steer a pathway through the complexity and do what is both pure and loving. What we've seen today is, is Paul doing that, steering the, Christian, the Corinthians like this. And he actually doesn't steer them with just one principle, but with a whole heap. We've, we've seen all these principles as we've worked our way through. He, they're to call for repentance. They're to hope for the salvation of the person. They're to aim to stop sin spreading and they're to communicate a clear break in Christian fellowship. Now these are the kind of principles that you'll see at work in us as a church today as well. We're a church that calls for repentance. We're a church that when that repentance doesn't come hopes for the salvation of the person. We're a church that takes steps to aim to stop sin spreading but we're also a church that is willing to communicate a clear break in Christian fellowship, if that's necessary. But how that looks in each situation will vary depending what's going on. So it's impossible for me to tell you exactly what it's going to look like. They're the principles that we will always apply, but it doesn't mean that we'll always gather the whole church together to deal with something that not everyone knows about. Now, depending on how public the unrepentant sin is and how public the defiance against Jesus, we might actually just operate in the realm of that person's influence, like in their community group 
or in their serving team. And again, depending on the situation, we won't always uh, ask someone to not attend this Sunday meeting. Sometimes we'll find better ways to communicate that break in Christian fellowship, like asking them not to take communion and not to attend their community group. But there would be some situations, though, where the sin is so public and unrepentant that we would need to, as, as a church, talk about this with everyone. And it's horrible just thinking about it. But we need to care more about Jesus' honour than our own honour, more about the salvation of, of that person than our fear of being uncomfortable, and more about the whole church's attitude to sin than playing happy, nice family. And we've not had to do this here yet as a church, thank God. I've not had to do this yet as a minister, actually, in in my 10 years of ministry. But I'll tell you, I've come close on a few different occasions. One time, not at this church, there was someone that we were really hoping would do MAP, like a ministry apprenticeship. But that person started a, a, a sexual relationship with one of the youth group leaders. Weren't married, of course. It was an inappropriate relationship that couldn't lead to marriage. They wouldn't repent. They looked like they would repent, but they just kept going back to it again and again over an extended period of time. And they said it just felt right. It felt like God was smiling down on them. I remember talking to another older minister about how to help them. Uh, That was our heart, of course. And from this passage in 1 Corinthians 5, he said to me that what he'd say to them in this order is, stop sinning or stop calling yourself a Christian or stop coming to church. I spent a lot of time with them, pleading with with literal tears, telling them the awful truth that if, if they didn't repent, it was like they were stepping outside the doorway painted in the blood of Jesus and they would face God's judgment alone without Jesus. They were facing hell. And I told them that as just a small taste of that, if they didn't repent, then they wouldn't be able to be a part of church anymore, just to give them a taste of that. In the end, they chose each other over Jesus. That's what's always happening with unrepentant sin. We're choosing something over Jesus. It was one of the saddest, most horrible low points of 10 years in ministry. It's hard, really hard to know what to do in those situations. And I'll tell you what, it's tempting to do nothing. But if we do nothing as a church in those kind of situations, what are we saying to each other? We're saying, hey, sin doesn't matter. What are we saying to the world? Saying, hey, everyone, just carry on. Sin doesn't matter. What are we saying to Jesus who died to make us his people? We're saying, hey, mate, what are you doing dying for sin? Don't you know it doesn't matter? If we do nothing, we're saying sin doesn't matter and we don't care, but it does matter and we do care. And so even when it's hard, we need to be sincere and true followers of Jesus, all of us, and we need to show that sin does matter. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, your holiness is confronting. 
Your wrath against sin, your anger is real. Lord, you are so loving and so kind and merciful that sometimes we try to block out your anger against sin. And yet, Lord, the reality is we will never grasp the depths of your love, the extent of your mercy until we see the horror of sin, until we see that sin really does matter. Lord, we know that we're all sinful, that daily we all have sinful ways of living and thinking. And yet, Lord, we keep turning back to you and throwing ourselves on Christ Jesus. Lord, help us never to be a church that in how we talk or in how we live says sin doesn't matter. Lord, instead, help us to see that it matters to you, that it matters to Christ who died for us, that he died to separate us from that. Help us to be a community of people that helps each other to acknowledge that sins matters and to be a community of grace and love, but not a community that justifies sin or indulges ourselves in it. Help us in this, Lord, and give us the courage we need to confront, even right now perhaps, people who are not repentant. Help us to do do it with love. But Lord, give us the courage to do it when we need to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.